0: Well, there is a new unstoppable movement that's fixing almost everything wrong with America's healthcare. It's called direct care and by sidestepping entrenched extractive meddles, employers and consumers alike can eliminate all the built-in confusion, gaming, all the tyranny because direct care pays for itself. So the members and white coats are doubling every three years. Welcome to the new healthcare economy where everyone wins. Redirect Health. I chose Redirect Health as our sponsor for a few reasons. I'm a happy client five years now, and our most downloaded shows by far are Redirect Health shows. No one has a health plan for small employers more focused on reducing healthcare costs than Redirect Health. They have over 3,000 Google five-star ratings and growing daily, and they average 4.6 stars overall. So stay tuned for your free report at the end of this show. Business Owner's Guide to Slashing Healthcare Premiums, get.redirecthealth.com backslash run. And now to the show. All right. The hospital model is falling apart at the seams when their backbone experienced nurses are leaving so fast that the seniority average was halved in 2023. And ER is a hot mess, which is important because 70% of all hospital admissions come in that way. And it's important because that's where they triage the good commercial patients from the not good federal patients, the Medicare-Medicaid that doesn't let their margins work out. So the commercial is really what supports most hospitals. Well, what is the next trillion-dollar Marshall Plan bailout request expected? Because these hospitals seem to be in big trouble, even though they're reporting terrific margins. The American Hospital Association tells us they're going to need another bailout. And they kind of Float that travel in every January. January now. Money doesn't fix a bad model. The implications of the FTC soon disqualifying healthcare non-competes for NPs and doctors is huge because they will be free to move into a direct care movement providing maybe thousands of openings plus annually for the foreseeable future. Again, these non-competes are kind of a vestigial time from medieval past and they need to go. Burnout is a non-starter when CPT codes are swapped out for a monthly subscription model that requires a true EHR tracking for care, not procedures. No one has to learn upcoding games ever again, or delay care, or argue with clerks over whether somebody needs their medications that have worked just fine the past five or ten years. No more charting in your PJs at night if you're a doctor. Welcome to a future where everybody wins. Now, I want to read from you an article that was in Medscape last month from a very courageous Dr. Edwin Leap who works in West Virginia and South Carolina hospitals. And when you hear what he said, you're going to understand why why he is courageous. Here's what he says. I suppose that if I have to use one word to describe the tone of modern American emergency departments, it would have to be despair. Our patients continue to despair for so many reasons. And he goes on to list how hard it is to get into ER, how long you have to wait, how disgusting it is. And as research, he continues to suggest a significant number of patients are on hold and they simply die in our EDs, emergency departments. Even those with common everyday problems despair as they wait hours to get treated for pneumonia or fractures or dehydration or fever, uncertain chest pain, only to be told to wait a little bit longer as the sickest of the sick continue to arrive by EMS and take up what few precious beds remain open in our departments, which are almost always at capacity. Some of the very sick leave the waiting room out of sheer exhaustion. Perhaps it's best to suffer in your own bed rather than in a stiff chair with somebody coughing and hallucinating or screaming next to you. A few of those who leave simply die at home because their illnesses were not immediately manifest to the harried triage staff. Okay, with that introduction, I'm going to actually get on a high point because we're going to introduce you to somebody very special, Matt Ort, who co-founded Self-Fund Health to help brokers and employers be able to write their own healthcare success stories with maximal plans, maximally efficiently designed plans for self-funded. So it's gonna involve TPAs and PBMs and direct primary care and direct contracts, everything we talked about on this show, but under a single technology platform to simplify what's needed for employers to succeed. Take all that complexity out. So employers across Wisconsin have saved 10 to 30% on overall healthcare costs and they're just getting going. Matt served as an influential HR leader working at Toyota, Badger Mining, where he arranged the HR leadership team as one of the great places to work in America, and recently as the vice president in HR and medical services for Merrill Steele, where this story is going to pick up. He started in 2016, and a lot happened over the next five years, and that's how we're going to lead off this show. He led the company on a five-year healthcare improvement journey, which involved on-site clinics, mobile clinics, physical therapy, chiropractic, MRI, bundled ortho surgeries, and world-class wellness program all bundled together for a plan. And the outcomes are, I, I don't want to, I'm going to steal his thunder. I'm going to steal the punchline of his joke. He has, they managed at Merrill to freeze premiums for six consecutive years when the 20-year trend had been up. Sounds familiar. And the cost savings on a $5 million spend over five years was about a $1 million One a year, about $5.5 million. And that's just the company. The employees also saved just shy of $2 million out of their HSA accounts. They didn't have to spend it. So very favorable effects on recruiting and retention, which I'm super interested in. In 2018, Matt found the Healthcare Best Practices Group. And today, over a 1,000 Wisconsin employers and 3,200 free market-minded individuals are involved. So Everything in Wisconsin is changing, folks. We just heard from an HR leader at two of the big school districts, millions saved with her, and now Matt, living in Wisconsin, is part of that movement or leading that movement, I I should say. He was chosen for this leadership in 2019 on a regional uh, HR award with the SHRM. A few years later, he received a transformation award for the whole state. In 2020, he was given a national award, um, which is usually won by companies like Disney and Boeing and Walmart. So this is a guy at a little, you know, privately owned company. And in 2022, Matt was selected by the Free Market Medical Association to receive the Be the Beacon Award, which is really, I guess, the Academy Award of this space. We don't really have that, but that would be it. Matt just wrote a book that I gobbled up called Save Your Company, Don't Feed the Beast, The Employer Healthcare Success Formula. It's a super practical and simple recipe book or a guide for employers to transform their health plans like he has. So kind of today's Scott is going to be about how do you, like, what does the optimal plan look like? Like, we should have an Academy Award for guys like Matt, but we should also have one for the optimal plan. We've never done that before in America. Matt and his wife, just to add icing on top of the cake, Denise serve as the champion foster parents and were selected to receive the Governor's Foster Parents of the Year Award. Matt, I am so glad to have you on this show.
1: Hi, Ron. Good morning. It's uh, great to join you this morning.
0: Well, so anything you want to comment on before we get going?
1: (laughs) A lot of great stuff there. Nothing specific. I'm sure we'll dig into it.
0: Okay. Well, I want to flash, like, we could talk about the tractor running over you. I've seen that happen to a man before. You survived something amazing there, but that's not the most interesting part of your story, as interesting as that is, which started your healthcare journey. I'd really like to talk about, I want to flash back to cutting the rebar to open the medical clinic at Merrill Steel and the support you got from two of the owners, uh, which were in the family, that really made that whole clinic and that whole model work. So start me wherever you want in that journey because that story um, is a case study people need to hear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That um, The tractor story is one I really shouldn't be sitting here right now. So that's uh, an intro to the book is, as many have found interesting that it was, it was a spark and it's fuels my fire, if you will, having gone through it, uh, some personal experiences, but along with that really, you know, I've had just short of a 25 year HR career as an executive. And, um, one of my things was, I always felt like I was responsible or answered to the employees, if you will. I mean, my job was to help them and the company succeed overall. And as you get in front of, A bunch of, uh, right, some steel workers, if you will. The last thing I wanted to do was give them bad news. And I felt like I owed them my best. And so they had been receiving, like most companies in Wisconsin, bad news for the last five heavy plus years, maybe 10 or more. And uh, my goal was to put a stop to that.
0: What kind of support did you get from the owners that you weren't getting at previous employers to do? something different.
1: Yeah, I think you bring up a really interesting point. One of the things that isn't talked about in these health plan transformations a lot, maybe because my voice is somewhat unique, more of an employer voice, is that there is a significant change management uh, effort that needs to be that needs to be implemented. So that's been, really been my passion. It's what I went to grad school for. it's really been, Um, Before I even got into this healthcare fix game, the last one-third of my career, the first two-thirds was cultural transformation and leadership and essentially driving positive change. But in order to make improvement, right, you need to change. And most people, uh, um, as you might not be surprised, uh, maybe we're all one of them, most people don't like change. And so because change is hard, change is bumpy, change is difficult, So as I got to know the owners, they really actually, one in particular, there were two brothers and a sister. The sister had come to me and said, is there anything we can do do about this? For the last five years, we've had about 10% increases and we've been absorbing those. And we really can't keep absorbing those, but we're not really the kind of company that wants to pass that along either and just watch our health plan fall apart. So as you joked about cutting the rebar, that was our version of the, uh, the ribbon as we did in front of news channels as we opened our clinic. And that support and um, that change, you know, in that start of that change management process was was absolutely critical.
0: I, you know, hear all the time, I had the CEO of Premise Health, which is the largest on-site, near-site direct primary care in the country with 11 million members. His his excitement is they have 11 million members. His keep up at night worry is that only 35 to 45% are engaged, which means that, 8 million people have access to free healthcare if they want to tap into it, but for some reason they want to keep their doctor, they're afraid of free, they don't trust something new. What is your feelings on engagement? What did Merrill do differently to engage people in to get involved in making the right decisions in their own plan?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I love to talk about this topic because I, I feel like it's a, kind of a blind spot with, uh, with what's happening in healthcare change today i won't call it reform because reform kind of implies changing the current system really what we're doing is creating a new system almost alongside the other system using the old where we have to but using the new where we can but this notion of change management so i you know i don't know if you've ever played the game red rover right Uh, as we were kids uh where you have a you hold hands and you have two lines and uh you call someone over and they try to break between two people and break their grasp of their hands (laughs) And if they break it, then they pull a person back over to their side. And if they don't, they join the other side. And change management is really an interesting game of Red Rover in that you start out and you need some, you better have some top level support. Um, Now, I was an HR executive, right? But I reported to the president and then there there was ownership as well. So you got to start out with that top level support, but as you change and you influence, uh, you're really trying to pull as many people over from what you would call right current state to future state, and the more you pull, the easier change gets. But there's a lot of resistance, there's a lot of bumps, there's a lot of misunderstandings, and so I think that that notion of that change leadership of this what I would call a transformational type leader, um, uh, Lou Holtz type leader in the in the old college football world, if you will, right? He took losing teams and made them winning teams. Uh, that kind of passion, in fact, he had a great uh, effect on me early in my career. But I think that this almost feels like it's overlooked in many cases. And and right, so we have this this notion, just, just like in lean manufacturing, if there's anyone out there has implemented lean, the reason lean fails half the time is because they implement the tools, but they forget about the people. And I think the same applies here. So if we forget about the people, then we can say, well, we've done it. It's somehow implemented or it's in action. But then you end up with 20% and 30% participation rates. And I would say that's a great risk for this movement that we somehow think we're succeeding, but I'm not sure we are. When you look at the best, when you look at the, the success stories in Wisconsin, and I would call it six mature success stories. Uh, each has saved over 5 million dollars and they've all been going over 5 years so it's not just one or two years one of the, one of them was a school district that actually saved over 10 million dollars one of the one of the common threads and that's one of the things I did in the book was I of course led my own story and 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 had great success but I also analyzed these other stories and I looked for commonalities, I looked for best practices. And one of one of those commonalities was a high level of participation from their members, which meant that there was an internal champion, well, one or more, which also is a common thread among the best practice stories. So you have experts along the way, you have experts supporting all around but you need an internal champion sometimes it's the owner of the company as in john Trinus way back at saragraph sometimes it's the vp of hr like myself or one other school district sometimes it's the cfo etc so title doesn't really matter but they're leading this change effort and they're getting people to come along, and if you look at these stories, they have eighty percent or more uh, participation in their DPC and beyond that these in their wellness programs and so forth. And they do they do these things they they do things right so that people are actually using it, right? So I think there's a, a very uh, clear distinction between we have these tools implemented, and then the next question is how many are actually using those tools.
0: Well, so Matt, you're saying something important here. It's replicated by the CEOs who have been on the show with the DPC service firms nationally. They're all saying what you're saying, that engagement might be 20 or what they call attribution sometimes where someone's using the service more than once. So, you know, a a health check or a screening or, you know, calling in with their history, that's not engagement. Engagement's where they're actually seeing primary care physician, MSK, behavior health more than once on, on a regular basis. 30%, 40% 30% 40% tops engagement and you're saying 20% versus 70 to 80% when they have a champion that's really what you're talking about is if there's a champion at the company and this is their job primary job is to deliver an ROI on this health care spend that's what what excited you to be the champion for Merrill Steel
1: I think it was uh, I think it was a combination of things it was going through that kind of um, not so great ER experience, not because I've just almost died or should have died, uh, but how the hospital treated me and then the billing process and getting billed for PT that I didn't even receive and all sorts of things, along with a lot of feedback as I came in. Um, it really developed, you know, that I have I have this, my my whole passion of getting into HR, by the way, was to help people. That's my, one of my root motivations if you will that I that I uh, love to help people and I I love especially having worked at Toyota solving problems maybe that everyone else said they tried and failed or that that weren't that you know were insoluble problems if you will and so I said let's go after it we already haven't solved it so what do we got to lose and so so we did in healthcare
0: um so when you're talking about delivering bottom line savings of a million, one million, two to a year at Merrill that is going to go straight right to the bottom line because it was a spend before now it's a a direct savings without any friction attached to it what type of impact does that have on retention and attraction of the best and the brightest
1: uh big time yeah i would go to the president and i would you know a lot of times even right the cfo was highly involved but i would say do you realize you're writing checks for these amounts this was not so-called insurance uh covering so we utilized that big time. We started actually doing uh, commercials, actually television commercials, and even some during you know a Green Bay Packer games, which get get a little expensive. But we really we we maximized it. So we were actually the commercials were about how how cool our healthcare was, but they were really about recruiting. And so and then we would we would promote this with new hires as well, or even interview candidates. So by the way, one of the the biggest predictor that I would say, and this is just Matt's opinion um, with a little bit of experience, as you know, behind it. But I would say the number one predictor of this free market model success is how is what percentage use the DPC. Now, there's lots of things that are beyond that, but that to me, that makes everything smoother. They listen to that white coat, They referrals become easy, they're getting far better primary care. So we would do things like in our recruiting process, we would in the in the first visit in the interview, we would give a tour of our clinic. We had a nice remodel that we had built from scratch, eighteen hundred square foot, uh, two exam room clinic with PT attached on the side. And then we would do things like our wellness program, and we would have our drug screen in that clinic. And we and so they're getting to know the clinic before they're even hired. And so what that's doing is that's increasing, you know, uh, the 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 respirator testing and all that anything we could do through the clinic we're getting them up there and in that time they're developing relationships and they're getting to know the nurses and the doctors and so forth and i think that was a big key to our high percentage of dpc usage
0: the um employees how did their health outcomes change were they using hospitals ed er's less what what changed on the outcomes
1: monitoring We were seeing all kinds. I mean, we saw the cost increases. So we were, you know, anecdotally certainly hearing a lot of stories and um, health can be a complicated thing to measure. Sometimes we did have like a dashboard. I had a packet of healthcare measures that I looked at monthly. Um, We had uh, feedback, even, you know, one quick note on the recruiting part. I went into my chiropractor one time at lunch. He said, I just had a Merrill Steel person before you. And he said, uh, even if I thought about leaving, I couldn't because the benefits are too great, right? So this was a genuine feeling about the benefits. yeah, in terms of healthcare outcomes, in one year we had six people. Uh, So word got out, we had a a smoking cessation program where we incentivized and the clinic played kind of cheerleader and gave gift cards along the way. And we encouraged that we had six people quit smoking in one year. And uh, that was our highest year. Um, We had people on weight loss programs. We gave everyone a Fitbit right and we had kind of fun competition team competitions with that and just really anything we could do to be creative to just to get people thinking about their health that's one of the hardest things by the way right is to get people to care about their own health (laughs) including me Mm -hmm. and all the cheese curds in wisconsin which are very tempting and and so forth but uh, so we tried to make it fun and we tried to make it real and they knew that they had that that clinic right there if they needed it
0: so I, I agree with you. The big opportunity is how do you get, you know, 30 up to 70, 80% participation. But I also think that measuring the soft costs, the retention, the attraction, the, the, the sick leave going down, absenteeism, and, and the one that's hardest and almost impossible to measure is engagement. Are they present at work or are they just showing up at work? You know, are they diddling around on uh, games on their computer? And you can't fool around and steal. You got to work or not. But d- did y'all ever try to measure some of the softer costs of those to see if that added to the 1.1 million you saved
1: there were a lot of variables of course affecting those things and and maybe and the data is maybe a little fuzzy in my mind now but I remember if I want to say correctly we we reduced at absenteeism by something like 50 percent when we started graphing this I could still pull out the old graphs Uh, we also reduced turnover notably now and when COVID hit of course new challenges arose and and finding people was a is a challenge still for every for every company. But we had some notable improvements in our turnover and in our absenteeism. And I think, right, you can say why, right, you can try to make correlations, but there's no doubt in my mind that they were uh, directly related to the healthcare measures we were doing. Now we were doing some other things. We changed our attendance policy to make it friendlier and, and more easy to understand, and and a, and a host of other things. So there were a lot of changes happening. But I, if I had to pick one, I would say the healthcare activities we did were the were making the biggest impact.
0: What what happened specifically with turnover?
1: I'm a little fuzzy on the numbers, but it was significant. It was in tens of percentages that we lowered turnover, according to our graphs that we were tracking monthly. So we had these tied right into a like an HR dashboard that I had developed. Which
0: is a big deal because in a small town, you're not going to be able to pick up a steel worker at the street corner, right?
1: Yeah, this uh, this uh, we had we had two plants. I actually, have three now. We had one in Missouri, and this was in uh, central Wisconsin. But it was viewed as one of the top three plants, uh, uh, weld shops in the nation. So building, you know, the Buck Stadium, the Packer Renovations, the Viking Stadium, the Raiders Stadium, and so forth. And so really complicated. The Raiders is like one of the most complicated stadiums ever. And I would go look out at these nodes that they were welding and the angles. I mean, it was like, you know, phd level geometry in my opinion so we we know the we weren't just hiring for anyone now we could bring in people at lower level roles and things but in terms of a lot of the roles in that in that shop uh, most people can't do so it it made recruiting even a little bit tougher because it wasn't just uh, as they say breathe on a mirror warm body it was really you needed skilled people
0: matt the bulk of your book talks about the master or let's call it the macro plan i'm not going to use exactly the words you use but if you could give an academy award for the perfectly designed plan among the thousand employers that are now part of your movement in wisconsin what what does an ideal plan look like if you could like be king for a day and say here's what we're going to do guys
1: yeah, no, that is the ultimate question, isn't it? So I think that's what the book describes, and that's what I was building at Merrill Steel, and that's the plan we're creating at Self-Fund Health, really, or after this ideal plan. It's modeled after the Merrill Steel success story and the other companies, so it's a proven way, uh, but uh, along with that, we're continuously improving. We're still coming across tweaks and measures and improvements, and we're constantly looking, right? It never stops. Um, this is, uh, I actually put this in a puzzle picture once and jotted this down, but this is about 30 to 35 pieces. And so it's too much to write, dig into here in detail, but I can give it a highlight. Uh, but that those 30 to 35 pieces include things like trustworthy partners. So I tell a story in the book where I had evaluated my partners and basically none of them I had found were really what we needed going forward, except one I had just partnered with a month prior, the DPC. But we ended up chasing changing all of our partners, that there were partners that, right? The kind of partners that sneak things in contracts and and do things when you're not looking. That's not a that's not the right partner. And the kind of partner that is status quo or static and, and resistant to change. I am I'm, I'm getting older. I don't have the energy to drag you along. I need you with me here. I need you uh pulling me along a little bit a little bit. So that would be one of the big things is all of the partners that you're working with, make sure they're aligned and uh, their compensation for for sure is aligned and they're trustworthy. And then I would go to the DPC. That was actually our first, I think that was our very first measure. Uh, We were big enough to do an onsite. If you, if not do a near site, it's almost the same thing. It's just in a different location. There are minor advantages or disadvantages to both. Uh, But as many people as you can get into that high quality primary care, yeah, you push two big levers when you do that. You get them real care, right? In, in the system today, we, we uh, if you've heard the phrase, hurry up and wait, we actually, in the system today with primary care, which has been just reduced to almost nothing, we wait and then we hurry up. We wait two or three months to get in. By then, I think we've half forgotten what our illness is or we've already gone to urgent or ER care, which is three or five times more. And then, we, and then we hurry up when we're in the visit. We get something like seven minutes. Doctors have told me they when they walk in that room, they've got two pa- two patients and two other rooms waiting for them. They are just rushed with 2,000-plus patient caseloads versus the 500-ish we see in the DPC. But I, I would call the DPC the heartbeat of this strategy, of the free market shopping strategy, that it can't be done without it. And so you have to um, have that Clinic be well aligned. And then it leads to things like smooth referrals because they listen to that clinic and you can make it free on the health plan. The health plan design is key. I always say that if you had a ton of free market providers around uh, a company and that company wanted to shop, they still wouldn't be able to because their health plan has tied them up. Their health plan is tied to a narrow network, a one lane road to a local hospital, and they still wouldn't be able to use them. So you have to free all those things up and enable shopping. And a lot of those components um, are tied to that, to enable shopping and finding the best value, just like we do in everything else we buy.
0: So you mentioned that you didn't just save money right away. I mean, you, were, you didn't have low-hanging fruit. You were tripping over fruit at Merrill. Um, what is the low-hanging fruit besides? Let's talk about pharmacy and medication spend, and let's talk about surgery, which is a lot more complicated subject.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it seemed like we started off with a clinic and I had played general contractor with a construction background. So instead of 400 grand, it was about 150 and another 100 for equipment. So we had a quarter mil investment, but we, after the first quarter closed, we had already gotten that back. So the CFO came to me and the owners smiled and, they, and I basically had the green light. I didn't have to propose a lot of things, right? They said, just be smart and go go do. So every every step that we did right? Kind of the surgery path, for instance. So in, in our area, we have this big uh, semi that says MRI scanner. Um, there are some stationary ones now all over the state, but at that time, that was, that was the primary way. So this truck would plug into a 480. They'd plug in at the clinics, at the hospital clinics and so forth, or at the actual hospitals. Well, we spent about 14000 and we put in our own plug. And it sounds like a lot, right? We had to run 480 from the other side of the building. Um, But that paid for itself in about a month and a half. So every step we were doing had an ROI. So now we had a clinic. Now we could offer a clinic, uh, an MRI rather, to the patients for free or almost free. And if that same, which we were paying 600 for, if it came to our door, if that same truck drove to the hospital, it became five or 6,000. Today, it's actually, I think, higher right? Same truck. And guess what? That truck's still making the five or 600. So the hospital's pulling in profit just for their plug. Well, that's not value-added shopping. And then we look further and then I found the surgery center of Oklahoma. This was before. Now we have the state mapped out and we have new surgery centers starting in Madison and Green Bay. We already have a great one in Milwaukee and also on the Western side. So the the doctors are getting in this game, but we were sending hip replacements to Oklahoma for something like 15 or $16,000. And you think people would never go right, fly in a commercial flight? and Now we'd put them in first class, and they would never do that to Oklahoma. Well, we had like three in the first couple of months, <laughs> so they will do it. They will do it if you make it worth their while and you take care of them and you show that you show that you care about them.
0: Well, and Oklahoma has the best onion burgers in America, so there's that. There you go, a, d- a double win. Surgery Center. So the way y'all laid it out on your plan was here: Surgery Center of America's copay, cost, out of pocket you know, your stipend that you're going to get for $2,500 to fly, first class. Here's the Well Bridge in Indiana. Here's another uh, surgery center. And then here's the where they plug in, you know, the MRI at the hospital. Here's their cost. And it's not even a close choice. Did anybody ever choose the pricey choice?
1: I have in our plan a little bit before they understood it, you know, and I said, wow, they're going to get a four or $5,000 bill. I bet the next time they make the right call. But I, I can't recall that Merrill Steele uh, where uh, anybody turned that down once we had a chance to explain it. I mean, that was a powerful story because you don't have any differentials in terms of, well, this doctor's higher quality or somehow this big logo on this big building is higher quality, right? You had the same exact truck. So it was a pretty easy explanation. It's like, what would you like me to give you? Ten dollars or a hundred dollars, right? I mean, it's it was almost that obvious. So that was a that was a powerful story that got people thinking about maybe I'm not getting a very good deal at this hospital. Many were already upset, right? Because mm-hmm. they're already frustrated with these with the with the healthcare industrial complex, as I call it, right? These entities that have joined together and and are winning big while the buyer loses.
0: Yeah. Matt, we don't have enough time to go into all the detail. I would like because there's a bigger story here on ideal plan. So we didn't even get to medications, but I want to book you again for another show as soon as possible and really talk about, you know, what does the Academy Award for ideal plan look like in all its 32 components and maybe we can simplify it down to just five or six, but, uh, because you're going to get highest value there. But um, how do people find you, Matt, if they want to reach out to you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. My email is Matt at self fund, Health.com, or I'm also on LinkedIn. So I would look forward to anybody reaching out and I always love talking about this stuff and glad to help.
0: Yeah, you're a great spokesman for the movement. And what about the banner overhead? If you could fly a banner over America with a single message, what would that
1: be? Something probably, Ron, like um, take back ownership of your health plan. Uh, manage the health plan like you do every other area of your business. You already have the skills, you already have the knowledge but is off the radar and it, it is the second or third biggest expense of a company. It needs to be a big blip on that radar.
0: Absolutely. Thanks again for your time. Can't tell you how much I enjoyed this. We're going to get you back very quickly. Sounds
1: great, Ron. Enjoyed it very much.
0: I have been a happy customer of Redirect Health since before I started the show, guys, and I know firsthand the integrity and laser focus on us of the members of its two founders, Dave Bert and Dr. Janice Johnson what do i get for me and my team well i have 24 7 access to my healthcare care team for any reason and they have all my medical records right at their fingertips at all times so no more filling out those stupid forms in clinics and if i need a refill if i got a rash I've hurt my back i need an annual physical redirect health takes it from there i just tell them on my app what i need we get free primary care visits and chiropractic and labs and patient assistance with meds which means you can get free meds for a lot of your employees, probably most of them actually, and hospitalization with a $2,000 deductible. All of that is in my plan for about half what I used to pay in a traditional high deductible plan. But I have zero deductibles, zero copays, except for that 2,000. So I go to get my care with my own doctor, or they'll find one for me. You keep your doctor with this plan, and I pay nothing there at the clinic after. It's super clean. What a friction-free plan should look like, right? And it's much less chance of any surprise bills. And redirect totally handles all the hassles when my doctor's billing department in the hospital messes up and they mess up 80% of the time. Well, I'm treated like a person, not a number at redirect. So I'll say it on this show a million times and on my LinkedIn post dozens of times, I use redirect health. If you want to get the business owner's guide to slashing healthcare premiums, go to get.redirecthealth.com backslash run get.redirecthealth.com backslash run. Thanks for listening. You can advance our movement by subscribing and kindly take a minute and leave a review. Each is a win for this show. Until next episode.